It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 64 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.30, it is the first of my two-segment chat with blues musician Kenny Wayne Shepard. Out of his shows at ACL Live at the Moody Theater this Saturday, tickets can be found at ACLLive.com. And in mere seconds, I'm spending a couple of segments talking about the Chiefs making that dynasty official with another Super Bowl crown. I am your host, Trey Elling. Give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, if the 2024 NFL season taught us anything, is that regardless of what Kansas City may look like during the regular season, assuming that Patrick Mahomes is this team's quarterback and Andy Reid is the guy on the sidelines, you should still bet on them come postseason time. Because once again, the Kansas City Chiefs have won a Super Bowl title going back-to-back for the first time since the Patriots did it in the early part of this century. This is a Chiefs team that was extremely flawed in the regular season, surprisingly on offense. It was actually the defense that did the heavy lifting for much of the 2024 regular season. With the offense finding success in doses while also struggling with drops from the wide receivers and some weird things seemingly going on in and around the locker room, too, in the case of Kadarius Toney. But when it mattered the most, starting in the first round of the playoffs, the wild card rounds with their win over the Dolphins and traveling to both Buffalo and Baltimore and winning there and making it back to the Super Bowl once again, they do handle business again, despite the fact that the 49ers got up by double digits in this game. San Francisco leading at halftime. KC just stunk on offense in the first half, and that was largely in part to the San Francisco defense, that front seemingly being up to the task of putting nonstop heat on Patrick Mahomes. And it was effective. Kansas City only had three points in the first half. They got those three later in the second quarter, too. But KC ultimately did get its act together in part because of that lot of defense. The Kansas City defense, which may have been bailed out by Kyle Shanahan and his play calling in the second half, especially the third quarter, where there was this insistence to throw the football, despite the fact that Christian McCaffrey was your running back. And KC got three and out after three and out after three and out in the third quarter, and Kansas City's offense was finally able to get into a little bit of a rhythm. And they were able to come back in the game ultimately taking a lead in the third quarter, 13-10, to 10, and then coming back in the end to kick a game-tying field goal to push things into overtime, which is where I guess the game, I mean, literally the game was won by Kansas City in overtime, but it's also where San Francisco may have lost the game too, based on conversations had with players after the game and San Francisco players not knowing that the Postseason overtime rules had been changed. I vaguely remember hearing about this in the preseason. But yeah, unlike 
regular season overtime rules where the first team who gets the ball, if they can score a touchdown, then the game's over from there. In the postseason, both teams get the ball at least once. And after both teams get the ball at least once, regardless of whether the first team scores that touchdown, the next team to win after that wins the game. Well, San Francisco players admitted after the game that they had no idea of that rule change. Guess which team did, though? Yeah, the Chiefs. They had talked about it in the previous two weeks. They had actually had a game plan on if they won the coin toss, deferring, and how they would handle things from there. I think it was Pat Mahomes who mentioned, had they needed to go down and score a touchdown in overtime, one, they probably would have. It is Pat Mahomes, after all. But two, they were likely going to go for it instead of giving San Francisco another opportunity to march downfield, and at that point, they just need a field goal. And so in the end, the Kansas City Chiefs win a third Super Bowl title in the Pat Mahomes era. And yes, they are officially a dynasty now. Meanwhile, the San Francisco 49ers, and maybe more specifically Kyle Shanahan, boy, Kyle Shanahan is going to have to eat another Tough loss in the Super Bowl. He has now been a major part of three different teams that have let double-digit leads evaporate before an ultimate loss on the biggest stage. Of course, the most well-known is that 28-3 lead that the Falcons had over the Patriots when Shanahan was the OC. You go back just a few years when these two teams met previously in the Super Bowl. I think it was early 2021. Same thing happened then. San Francisco gets up by double digits. Kansas City comes back and wins the game. And now here he is again. Pat Mahomes wins the Super Bowl MVP. Shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Travis Kelsey has a nice game. Kudos to McCole Hotterman too, I guess, for the game-winning touchdown catch. Isaiah Pacheco, not a great game for him, but he ran hard. But ultimately, it is about Pat Mahomes, including not just the arm, but also his legs and utilizing those legs to pick up big yardage at crucial times. Late in the game into overtime. On the San Francisco side, you got to give Brock Purdy a ton of credit. This guy has faced as much criticism as just about any quarterback that takes his team to the Super Bowl in the last several years. And look, some of it was earned. He was erratic in the first halves of their two previous playoff games. That was not the case yesterday, though. Brock Purdy was sharp early on and perhaps gave Kyle Shanahan a false sense of confidence of what he should be doing in the third quarter and how they threw it. I want to say they threw it eight out of the nine plays that they ran on offense in the third quarter, all three and outs, by the way. Three series, three three and outs, eight passes, one run there. It's hard to be too critical, I guess, because Christian McCaffrey did have 30 total touches in that game, but Elijah Mitchell is a good running back. And if there's a game to get Christian McCaffrey something closer to 35 or 40, it would be this game, the very final game of the season that determines the world champ in the sport. But Shanahan saw how Purdy was dealing in the first half and decided to roll the dice. And unfortunately, it ends up costing them, not just the inability to score points in the third quarter, but San Francisco's defense wore down as a result too. 
there's a biggest takeaway. It's less about the offense not holding up its end of the bargain and more about the San Francisco defense that was playing with its hair on fire in the first half and making Patrick Mahomes' life miserable. They were having a hard time getting home in the second half, allowing Kansas City to get into that rhythm. Which ultimately they did. Christian McCaffrey in his 30 touches finishes with 160 yards. Not great on the ground, 22 for 80. But he did have the first touchdown of the game, of course, on that 24-yard catch and run on the reverse that was thrown by Jennings, I believe. Yeah, Juwan Jennings. It was a 21-yard gain, excuse me. But it was a pretty pretty pedestrian effort from San Francisco's other skill guys. Brandon Ayuk had three for 49. Juwan Jennings was arguably the second best receiver in the game after Christian McCaffrey. Four for 42. Touchdown catch. Had the touchdown pass too. Debo Samuel, who tweaked something in the second half. There's a shock. Three for 31. And George Kittle held to two catches for four yards. You told me those guys were going to do that against Kansas City, then I would say that Christian McCaffrey needed to go over 200 total yards on the ground and through the air for San Francisco to have a chance. They still had a chance even without that, but ultimately it was too little, too late. We will continue the Super Bowl 58 conversation on the other side, on the field, off the field, halftime show commercials. It's going to be coming up next here on Sports Day Plus on 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Kansas City 25, San Francisco 22. That was the final score in Super Bowl 58 last night with the Kansas City Chiefs taking another title home back to the state of Kansas and technically the state of Missouri as well. They will be celebrating that championship this week. No doubt Patrick Mahomes will be shotgunning some beers in the process and hey, it is deserved. Like this story came out last week where he begged the team to stay away from the indulgences of Vegas that once they get the job done he's going to bring everybody back Expenses on him. And hey, he's got the dough to pay for something like that. Now he has another Super Bowl title to make it all the more worth it as well. No people have been talking about the halftime show, Usher. According to those who know much more about this than I do, it was a great performance. That's just not my cup of tea. I'm going to watch live music. I want to see songs beginning to end. In the halftime show, you don't have that luxury. You're literally taking 45-minute snippets from your most popular songs and you're just mixing all of those down into, what, a 15- to 20-minute performance? The performance was nonstop. Usher danced well, I guess. Saw Alicia Keys. She looked good. Saw somebody that I thought was CeeLo. Turned out to be Jermaine Dupree. Dressed like... Angus Young and ACDC, very strange look. Ludacris came out at one point. Little John maybe came out at one point. Will I Am? That's not my cup of tea, though. I'm going to trust you people 
with the halftime show critiques. And folks tend to agree that Usher did get a passing grade. Do have a question though? Alicia Keys, married with kid, maybe a little bit over the line, Usher. You coming up behind her and pressing up against her like that? There's no way she wasn't feeling things. If there's anything going on down there, but regardless, she seemed a little bit uncomfortable there. Maybe give her a heads up that that's going to happen or give her some say-so as to whether or not that's going to happen. I get that you are the halftime show, but still. On the commercial front, what was the best commercial of the night, in your opinion? For me, it was probably the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Dunkin' Donuts commercial. There's a self-awareness there with them selling out. Damon apologizing to the cameras after saying, how about them donuts? And then just really schlepping Dunkin' Donuts hard. But it makes sense for those guys, too. They've probably been Dunkin' Donuts customers for most of their lives, going back to their childhoods. They do did grow up in Boston, after all, and that's where Dunkin' Donuts originated. I did not understand. Oh, gosh, what is it? My wife told me it's like a Chinese Amazon telly. It was an orange logo, and they played like eight commercials during the Super Bowl. I guess they have a lot of money to burn. So a place you can get stuff online. Like Chinese Amazon is how somebody described it to me. Regardless, your commercials annoyed me. And I think that you overdid it at the Super Bowl. Not a customer. Your Super Bowl commercials backfired, at least on this person. I'm just a bitter old guy. Saw Mr. T in a commercial at some point in the second half, and I'm getting a little bit worried about Mr. T. He is no longer intimidating anybody. As a matter of fact, I am worried that we're going to be receiving a, some sort of news story in the not-too-distant future that Mr. T wandered off and nobody can find him now. But look, Father Time remains undefeated. That includes with Mr. T, too. Speaking of figures from past Rocky movies... I guess we get one more shot of Apollo Creed in that weird Gronk commercial that I think it had to do with FanDuel. It was a confusing commercial. It felt like they were shoehorning Apollo Creed in there after his surprising death just a couple of weeks ago. I still don't know what to make of that one. And Kate McKinnon, SNL alum, very funny Kate McKinnon. That Mayo commercial sucked. They've been the worst commercial In the entire Super Bowl last night, the cat that's saying meow, they make it sound like mayo. Come on, Kate McKinnon. Are you that big of a mayonnaise fan? If so, I guess good for you for securing that bag, as the kids like to say. But that was a pretty sad moment for Kate McKinnon, in my opinion. Not going to be surprised if she is less funny going forward. But look, the Super Bowl... This is so much less about the commercials and the halftime show than it is the game itself. And I'm going to give you a very honest opinion right now. The end of the game was exciting. That was kind of a boring game to watch. And I feel like more often than not, that's what we get with the Super Bowl. It's the last game of the year, so we're celebrating that. And most of us who are at Super Bowl parties where there are other attendees, maybe you're distracted by the conversation, whatever else is going on, the food. Great spread at the Elling household yesterday, by the way. Thank you to my wife 
for making our world-famous buffalo chicken dip, and my buddy Ike, he of Domino's fame, for hooking me up with some smoked queso. Holy cow, that stuff was out of this world. The game itself was very meh. It was not that exciting. Neither team was playing all that great. I guess you were getting good efforts from the defenses, but I want to see offense in a game that I consider to be entertaining and enjoyable. Got a little bit more offense in the second half. Thanks, Kansas City. I guess thanks, San Francisco, in the fourth quarter. But ultimately, that game was lacking for most of it, but makes up for it at the end with the drama. San Francisco kicking the go-ahead field goal. Kansas City driving down the field. They have a chance to score a touchdown. They settle for a field goal. We do get an overtime after that, so we do get bonus football. But ultimately, it didn't feel like a game of the year candidate. That's the reality with the Super Bowl, though. That's what you have to expect a lot of years. Teams traditionally start slow. The over-under in the first quarter was only 9.5. And And even if San Francisco had scored a touchdown, as they were driving and ultimately did score a touchdown early in the second quarter, that was, uh, the under was met with plenty of time to spare, I guess. My buddy Sam Paniotovich, who I guess we had a technical issue with our show on Friday, he mentioned taking the under in the first quarter because teams traditionally start slow in the Super Bowl. That's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, that slow start just carried over through the first three, heck, through most of this game. Got a little bit more offense in the fourth quarter, but it was uh, it was pretty pedestrian until both defenses started to wear down. And then it was Kansas City's defense that was able to make the stop when it mattered, whereas San Francisco's could not, and who can blame them with Pat Mahomes as the opposing quarterback. Quick look at the Longhorn basketball team before we hit the commercial break. They officially got to the end of that six-game stretch against ranked opponents last Tuesday with a loss to Iowa State that left them at 3-3 three and three in that stretch. They got one easier game this Saturday before having the week off and traveling to Houston to face the number three Cougars this coming Saturday. And they made sure to make this last Saturday's game count with a 94-58 beatdown of West Virginia. This is a Mountaineers team that did beat Texas early in conference play. Really embarrassing loss if you watched the game on Saturday and saw just how bad this West Virginia team is. Remember, they lost Bob Huggins halfway through the offseason. The roster is a bit lame duck right now, and it looked that way. On top of Texas playing a really good game, by the way, Dylan DeSue is a star. Enjoy him while you can, Texas fans, because he is likely going to be a first-round pick. Probably not a lottery pick, but a first-round pick in next year's, or this summer's NBA draft, I should say. He was perfect in the first half. Finished the game with 27 points. Max Asmus passes another college scoring legend in route to 19 points. Good to see Tyrese Hunter back on track in a sense. He gets 19, 8 of 12 from the field, 3 of 4 from three-point land. Look, West Virginia, not good, but Tyrese Hunter needs to start taking those steps forward. This team needs him if they are going to exceed whatever their potential is right now. He also had seven assists and only one turnover. As a team, Texas had 28 assists and only five turnovers, which was a huge departure from that visit to Morgantown where I feel like they had 15-plus turnovers in that game and were not doing a very good job of sharing the basketball either. 
This team shot 65% in the first half, 50% from three-point range, 8 of 16. And look, Dylan DeSue, I was critical of how many threes he was taking when he was finally inserted into the lineup, coming back from that off-season surgery, the injury suffered at the end of the previous season. And you hear it on every broadcast. He spent the entire time that he wasn't able to be on his feet in the gym shooting, working on the mechanics of that shot, and it is clearly paying off. He's about 50% shooting threes this year, and it's hard to fault him for taking a shot from deep because he's making them at a greater than 50% clip to go along with how effective he is with his mid-range game and then right around the basket also. It's unorthodox the way he goes about his business. His shot doesn't look pretty, until you see it go through the hoop. Until you see that shot count for three points or two points for the shots inside the three-point line. Dylan DeSue is special. And it's cool to see Max Aismas in his final year as well, filling it up for the Longhorns too. He had a couple of weird up and down games. I know the TCU game finished strong, but Aismas needed to have another good game too. You know it was only a matter of time for him. Dylan Mitchell also makes it into double digits. Kendall Weaver does too. None of the starters had to play more than 30 minutes. A little bit surprised that Aismas and Kendall Weaver both played 30 minutes. I would expect to see a little bit more out of the bench. That did not turn out to be the case though. Regardless, congrats to the Texas Longhorns and buckle up because it's going to be a tough one at Houston this Saturday. All right, coming up, we're taking a break from sports for a two-segment conversation with blues musician Kenny Wayne Shepard, head of his show at ACL Live at the Moody Theater this Saturday. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Kenny Wayne Shepard is an award-winning musician who specializes in the blues and playing a nasty brand of guitar. He has been on the scene since the mid-1990s, starting with Ledbetter Heights and Trouble Is, both albums going platinum in the mid-1990s. His most recent album that he is currently on tour for is Dirt on My Diamonds Volume 1. And Kenny is actually coming through Austin this weekend with that tour. ACL Live at the Moody Theater. Dirt on My Diamonds Tour with Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton. Still some tickets remaining for this show on February 17th. You can go to ACLlive.com to snag those and for more info. Kenny, thank you so much for the time. How you doing today? I'm good. How about yourself? Doing great. Excited to talk about this new album and you uh, passing through town in promotion of the new album. You're going to be here in Austin on February 17th at ACL Live at the Moody Theater I don't want to yeah. uh, make any assumptions here, but considering your blues-based background and what Austin has meant to the blues, uh, you have a pretty good energy when you come through town playing shows? Absolutely, man. I got a lot of history there. Um, you know, a lot of my heroes, uh, musical heroes, have come out of that town. But, you know, I mean, going back to when I was 15 or 16 years old, you know, that's when I played my first gig at Antone's. Uh, I did. I recorded my third album, the Live On record, down in Austin. Um, at one point, I thought I was going to wind up living there, but didn't end up moving there. But just spent a lot of time there, soaking up the vibe. Um, a lot of guys that I've worked with over the years are from there. Chris Layton from Stevie Ray Vaughan's band Double Trouble, uh, Tommy Shannon, 
uh, played with me for a while on a, several records, but, you know, out on the road as well before he retired. And uh, my guitar tech, Dustin, uh, lives down there. You know, Eric Johnson, Jimmy Vaughn, like all these guys, Gary Clark, you know, just a rich musical heritage uh, out of Austin for the kind of music that I really love. I had the pleasure of knowing Gary Clark uh, back around the time that, uh, well, I guess uh, the, the timeline's a little bit different. When he was a 15 or 16-year-old playing at Antone's, uh, shortly after that, I had the pleasure of knowing that dude. And it, very modest guy back then, even though he was destined for superstardom. It felt like with yourself, uh, when you came onto the scene in the uh, the, the mid-1990s, have you uh, done much in the way of working with Gary over the years, Kenny, considering that you guys both are uh, looked at as the future for blues? You know, we haven't really done a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. we've done a few things here and there, uh, random just appearances like uh, the Hubert Sumlin Memorial Concert, that was years ago at the Apollo theater in New York. We were both on that together. Our paths crossed from time to time, but we've never done any collaboration or anything like that. I remember meeting Gary. We were playing at Antone's doing a thing at one point and, uh, and he came out, it was before, right before he kind of blew up and he came, you know, up on the bus and, and they introduced me to, to him and, you know, really nice guy. And uh, I, I hadn't actually seen him play in person yet. So I didn't, I didn't know how talented he was, but obviously the people that were introducing him to me, I respected their opinion. They know good music and, and, you know, they were introducing him to me for a reason because he had the chops, you know? And then, you know, I've caught up with him. Like we were doing a European tour and we saw that him and his band were playing. We had the day off. So we hopped in and, and caught his show and stuff, you know, tremendously talented dude, man. I wish him all the success. I'm, I'm proud of what he's accomplished, you know? And uh, and and this kind of music, any kind of exposure, any kind of artists that are bringing more attention to the blues genre, that's all, always a good thing for everybody. I imagine you're also pretty pa- proud about your most recent record, Dirt on My Diamonds, Volume 1. And it was really cool to hear you talk about this new album a few months back when you mentioned, and this is something, a practice that you've been involved with for several albums now, where you work really hard to exit your comfort zone when it comes to the music creation process. Uh, Was there something that inspired that initially that made you want to not necessarily get complacent with what you're really good at, but also what's really comfortable and helping to, uh, to, to transform your music and yourself along the way? Well, yeah, it wasn't that I was complacent, but like I was able to identify <clears throat> that what I was doing and the people I was working with, it was working really well. And there's one of those like, you know, that saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it's all but there's also something to be said for like growth happens when you push yourself to the point of being uncomfortable, you know, and that is what I was kind of looking for is further growth. And so, you know, I still collaborate with uh, the people that I have written with my entire career, right? I still work with those people. Uh, I still am making records with Jerry Harrison, who I made so many albums with, um, but I also wanted to work with some other people, write with some people that I had never written with before because that's uncomfortable, but something awesome might come from it produce, co-produce and work with another producer, Marshall Altman, which I started working with him on the Lay It On Down record. And now we're up to like doing four albums together. It's like nobody says you can't do that and this at the same time. And so I just wanted to start pushing myself to do things that made me uncomfortable to see where that would lead me, you know? And I think it's led to some really interesting albums that we have made. And it's 
just led to further growth for me as an artist. How did operating outside that proverbial box for this most recent album help you grow? Well, I think it for this recent album, it's like, you know, we just continue to do more of the same. It's like as Marshall and I first started to get to know each other and working together on the Laid On Down record, and then we did uh, the Traveler record, and now we got Dirt On My Diamonds Volume 1 and Dirt On My Diamonds Volume 2 that's going to come out later you know, it's like we just get more and more comfortable and we start seeing how much further we can kind of push ourselves in different directions. And so this album, I mean, I think the previous album, The Traveler, is one of our best records to date. Right. And so uh, I think this is just a continuation of that. And uh, we kind of hit our stride, if you will. And so with that comfort comes the ability to try different things and throw different ideas out. And you're hearing that on this record. I mean, you hear a lot of different sounds. You hear a lot of different genres, all of which I grew up listening to. I didn't just listen to exclusively blues my whole life. You know, I grew up listening to everything. And so that stuff finds its way into the music that I write and record and create. And so you're hearing even more of that on this record. Not that this is the first album or this is uh, recognizable, but you've really grown into your voice over the years, too. I mean, you talk about it uh, going back to the mid-1990s when you first really blew up and were getting Grammy nominations. You were, I don't know if afraid is the right word to use, but you didn't do a whole lot of singing on those albums. But uh, over time, that has changed significantly. Well, what I was, I mean, there was a little bit of nerves, but it was only because what I really was more than afraid is I was able to really take inventory of like, what can I do well and what can I not do well? Then at that time, uh, I can play guitar beyond my years. You know, I can play guitar. I was a teenager and people are like, wow, because I can play guitar like, a, you know, somebody well beyond my years. But when I opened up my mouth and started to sing, I sounded like a kid. And I mean, there was no getting around that. And that was not the the voice. That was not the sound that I heard from my records. The songs that I was writing were mature songs. They, they, they didn't, uh, a child's voice didn't belong on that stuff, you know? And since I couldn't sing beyond my years at that point, uh, I didn't have a problem finding somebody that could because I had standards for my music and we had to meet those standards. So for the first three records, somebody else did all the lead vocals. I sang one song on my first album, Better Heights, very reluctantly. I allowed myself to be talked into that. But I believe if I would have allowed them to talk me into singing all those songs, it, the album would, hit, would not have been as successful as it was. And then... When the time came that my voice <clears throat> had kind of matured to the point that I felt it was appropriate to to hear it on my music, then that's when I started singing. And that was the fourth record. And I've sang to varying degrees moving forward from that album in 2004. And now we've kind of settled into this thing where I sing about half the record and Noah sings about the other half of the record. And we have two lead vocalists in the band, which is a really cool thing. Not a lot of people have that luxury of having two lead singers in a band. Do you have a favorite song to sing on Dirt on My Diamonds Volume 1? Well, I'm working on it. I mean, the dirt the title track Dirt on My Diamonds, I think that's one of the reasons why we led with that song is cuz it has a strong vocal performance. It has all the elements, you know, of the Kenny Wayne Shepherd band in 2024. Mm. It has blues, it has rock, it has a solid vocal, uh it has searing guitar playing. Um, so, I, you know, that one's going to be fun for sure. Sweet and low should be fun. You can't love me is nice. You know, it's a nice kind of departure from all that other stuff. 
Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward. I think we're going to play probably about four, maybe five songs from this record in the live show for this year, which is, you know, half or more than half of the record. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing how, how it all works out. Sometimes you do songs on a record and they work perfectly for an album, but they don't translate live. So huh. some of that will be trial and error and we'll see how these songs translate with the audience. Why is that? Why are, are there certain songs that sound great on a record, but just don't work live? Well, because what you need is what you need on an album sometimes is just a shift in the mood, right? And so you'll put a song because, you know, albums originally were meant to be people would buy the whole record and they would sit, they might hear one song on the radio. They're like, I got to have that song. Well, in order to get that song, you had to buy the whole record, right? And so then they spent the money on the whole record. So they would sit and listen to the whole record, right? At least once. And so the the idea is that you make an album and the hope is that they're going to listen to the whole thing and from start to finish. And so you, you're strategic about the order you put the songs in and which songs go on the record so that it flows a certain way. And sometimes you just need a change in the mood to break things up a little bit so that then you can put this other song after that one. And it's not necessarily the song that you need in the live show. Because you also have, I mean, we've got 30 years worth of other material that we can fit in as well. So sometimes, you know, you record songs and they might not ever actually make it to the stage, but it was the right thing to do for the album. Makes a lot of sense. He is Kenny Wayne Shepard, longtime musician, blues guitarist, of course, and a whole lot more. He is on tour, and that tour is coming to Austin this weekend, Saturday at ACL Live at the Moody Theater. Kenny Wayne Shepard Band, the Dirt on My Diamonds Tour, along with Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton. Go to ACLLive.com for tickets and more info. Coming up, one more segment with Kenny on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back with renowned blues guitarist and musician Kenny Wayne Shepard. He is currently on tour. It is the Dirt on My Diamonds tour, bringing that through Austin this weekend. That's right, Saturday, February 17th. The Kenny Wayne Shepard Band, along with Samantha Fish and Jesse Dayton, are going to be at ACL Live at the Moody Theater. Get your tickets and find out more info at ACLLive.com. Kenny, you were just talking about creating music that makes sense on an album, but it's harder to pull off live. I have a seven and nine year old right now, and you have six kids. Is that correct? Yeah. What's the how old is the oldest, and how old is the youngest? Five between five and sixteen. Five and sixteen. My goodness. Uh, good, good, good on y'all for uh, for going that route. We feel yeah. overwhelmed at times with just two. I don't want to be on a uh, playing uh, a, a person down if we go three or beyond. But uh, my nine year old daughter is really getting into music right now, and of course she wants the modern technology that people use to listen to music. But I'm like, no, you got to get a discman. You're going to have to buy albums. You're going to have to learn the value of listening to an album from beginning to end, which she does now. And I I think that's really cool to see because that's a bit of a lost art in this day and age, Kenny. It is, man. You know, it's kind of gone back. The whole streaming thing is taking us back to this, to this era, you know, used to be in the fifties and stuff. It was like 45 albums, singles. And then you had the A side and the B side, and it was one song and another song. And that was that. And they would just kind of push those singles. And then we really got into, especially bands like the Beatles and stuff. It was like, you know, the whole album experience, you know, 
And it was like buying the record and, and looking at the artwork and, you know, reading the notes from the band inside and having all the lyrics, you know, in front of you and stuff. And now it's like you hear that one song and you go find that one song online and you add it to your little playlist and, and maybe you never listen to another song from that record, from that artist. So I would love nothing more because, you know, it's like a movie. It's like, would you really just go online just to find the one scene out of the movie that you thought that you saw that you thought was funny and you'd only watch that, you know, two minute clip or do you actually go watch the entire movie from beginning to end and see all the amazing scenes, you know, that they put out there when they put the whole thing together? I mean, that's, that's art is the full experience. It's not just like, you know, it's not like a, a sampling of the experience. You want to have the whole experience. That is an incredible analogy for that. I, I think also about just a literal piece of artwork. It's like you look at one tiny section of that piece of art. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't give you the full effect of what that artist intended. You know, somebody, yeah. I'm not going to Sophie's Choice you by asking for the number one all time, but uh, what is an album that you uh, just can't help yourself but to listen to beginning to the end once you put it on initially? Oh, yeah, that's easy. Well, there's two of them that always come to mind. One is uh, the ZZ Top album called Fandango, and it's actually really cool because it's half live uh, performances that I think were actually recorded in Austin at the UT uh, football stadium, which yeah. if I'm correct, I could be off, but I'm pretty sure – those live tracks were recorded there, and that was the last concert that they had at that stadium until the Eagles and Kenny Wayne Shepherd played that stadium in the 1990s. I want to say it was 1996 when the Eagles first got back together wow. and they did the Hell uh, Hell Freezes Over tour. And that was the first concert since that ZZ Top concert that was allowed to be done at that stadium because, because it, was such, they, it was such chaos at the end of that zz top concert right yeah they i think they tore the whole field up and you know it's just like it messed the whole thing up they're like no more and then <laughs> and then the next show that they allowed there was the eagles and kenny wayne shepherd was the opening act and uh anyways but the fandango record is so cool because it's half live half studio stuff it's short and sweet it's like i don't know it's probably nine songs maybe mm. it's not like 16 song record um, and it's great. So from beginning to end every time. And then there's a Muddy Waters album that's a little bit longer, but it's called Hard Again. Johnny Winter produced it, played guitar on it. Another Texas guy. And uh, and one of the greatest Muddy Waters bands, the era of Muddy Waters, it's my absolute favorite, is this era. And so that album, Hard Again, from fir- from the first song to the last every time. I guess, fortunately, you're not talking about the 1970s Eagles here, so things were uh, pretty tame by then. But what was it like? touring for them. Gosh, it's such an early point in your career as well. Yeah, I graduated high school. <clears throat> My record came out like a few months later uh, in September of 95. I went out on the road with BB King and then the Eagles had just gotten back together and they just started doing some shows in the US. They asked us to open up the show in Austin and that was kind of like a trial run I guess for us to do their European tour so we ended up opening up for the Eagles on their entire European tour uh that year so I think it was 1996 by the time that all came together so yeah I mean I was fresh out of high school dude I'm playing for like 80,000 people opening up for the Eagles it was pretty incredible was it nerve-wracking at all I would assume so but then again I don't have ice water in my veins like you do I don't, you know, I don't know. I can't really, really remember, but I feel like there was a certain amount of naivety, you know, I was like so young that I kind of didn't realize the the full magnitude of what I had stepped into. So I just went out and did my thing. Hmm. 
So uh, this new album has been described as a uh, pretty optimistic, a positive album, which isn't always the case with the blues necessarily, but those two things aren't exclusive. They shouldn't be exclusive to one another. Is that how you guys set out to write this album, to have something that was a little bit more on the positive side? Well, for a long time, that's been my deal. It's like, I just, you know, there's a couple of different so- uh, difficult songs on this, like Ease My Mind, the last song on this record is kind of a down and dirty back alley blues song. It's a gritty song. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, and then there's also uh, You Can't Love Me, even though, but if you listen to the music, it's kind of, the music makes you feel good, but the actual message is pretty heavy Mm. and pretty deep. Um, But ultimately, man, I set out a while ago, especially when I started having kids, it's like, I just realized, man, music is a powerful thing. You think about it, like athletes, guys that are getting ready to go to war in the boxing ring or like listening to headphones and they're using that music to like get them amped up, football players, basketball players, people that are about to go to battle, you know what I mean? For the next like several hours, they're using this music to like hype them up. I mean, music can change your mood. It can change your day. It changes your actions, your attitude, everything. And so that's powerful, man. So I realized that. And there's so much negativity in the world and there's so much negativity in a lot of music nowadays that I'm just like, you know what? I just want to be a part of something positive, right? Mm-hmm. I want to sound cheesy, but I, it's like, if, I, if you listen to my music, I want you to come away from it feeling good, you know? And so blues music can be about difficult stuff, but it's also about celebrating life. It's also about the healing process, which is a positive thing. And so I've just chosen to focus on, you know, making people feel good. What's the best thing about being the parent of six kids? Oh, wow, man. Well, being a parent in general, doesn't matter how many kids you have, uh, is an incredible thing. And it's also like one of the biggest learning experiences of your entire life, man. It's, you know, teaches you the true definition of like selflessness and, and, uh, powerlessness, you know, and just like, as they get older and what it's like to have to like love somebody so much, but allow them to be free to live their own life and make their own mistakes and, you can't protect them from everything. And, and it's also like a mirror, you know, and you get to relive like so many of your own childhood moments, you know, it's mm-hmm. like my kid will be doing something and, and I'll notice it. And it just takes me back to being that age doing the same exact thing. And so it brings back all these childhood memories. So you kind of get to relive your own childhood to a certain degree. So the whole experience is pretty profound. There are a lot of answers for this next question, Kenny, but what's the hardest thing about parenting kids in 2024? Because holy cow, are there landmines all over the place? No, two things. The, well, it all is lumped into one and it's the internet. Yeah, That's the most, that is the most difficult thing as a parent. Absolutely. It's the number one problem causer, I believe, you know, it's like, but video games and social media, social media is, you know, on one hand, like if you're an artist, it's it's a great tool, man. It's like one of the greatest tools because you can go direct to your customer, you know, where before you needed a record company or somebody with much more resources than you to kind of get the word out. So in that in that regard, it's a great thing. But like for the social fabric of this country and our children and their mental health and their well-being, it's horrible. I mean, it's like all these filters that like try people try and make themselves look a certain way, you know, that's not real. It's like, it, it's forcing young people to believe that they have to obtain this unobtainable level of perfection in order to be considered good or loved or appreciated or worthy. And it's like, it's total BS. And, uh, and just like the, I don't know, there's just so many negative things to, 
social media and the internet and and you got to really uh, we try and protect our kids from it as much as possible yeah we try that too it's very much an uphill battle especially when you send them to a school and half their day is staring at a screen supposedly learning something but if you can do it right you can raise these little humans soon to be bigger humans who are capable of being present and have face-to-face human-to-human interactions that is going to put them at a major advantage at some point. Not that that's why I'm doing it necessarily, but I also see how many kids can't operate without a screen in their hand or something that they're looking at at all times, whether you're talking about just hanging out in the car at a swimming pool or at a social gathering. It's it's really sad. Well, I think that ultimately as a parent, you just have to ask yourself, who do you want raising your kids? Do you want to be the one that's raising your children or do you want the internet to be raising your children? Anyways, you know, I don't criticize anybody for raising their family the way they feel is appropriate. But for me and my family, we've tried to do our best to limit that stuff as much as possible. Because once you go there, there's it's almost there's no going back. You know, it's a really hard thing to take all that stuff back once they've been exposed to it. I've know? talked to a lot of parents who have a, a ton of regret because they weren't cognizant enough in the moment. But it's hard to blame them because we were told and taught that this was the future and uh, get with the times or get left behind. But that's turning out not to be the case, unfortunately. Well, what an enjoyable conversation this was with Kenny Wayne Shepard. Check out the new album, Dirt on My Diamonds, Volume 1. Volume 2 will be coming at some point later this year. Uh, Also, if you're here in Austin, he's performing. ACL Live at the Moody Theater on February 17th. Tickets at ACLLive.com. Also, check out his website, KennyWayneShepard.net. Kenny, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, another show is in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.